Hello, everybody. You're listening to a special episode of the SEA podcast, brought to you by the members of the Specialty Coffee Association. My name is Vicente Partida, and I'm the Director of Communications at the SEA. Today on the podcast, we're going to be listening to the audio of an interactive webinar we hosted last week on the SEA's response to the coffee price crisis and the forthcoming report with recommendations for the coffee industry. Kim Elena Ionescu, SEA's Chief Sustainability Officer, and Ellie Hudson, Director of Strategy and Steering for Advocacy, hosted the webinar, recorded live on August 19th. Kim Elena and Ellie covered the research that SEA staff and volunteers have been doing in preparation for the report, including risk assessments and convenings of coffee professionals and experts that have taken place over the past eight months. They took questions from attendees and invited everyone to get involved in the peer review process for the forthcoming report. After listening to this podcast, if you're interested in reviewing the documents that the staff and volunteers of the SEA's Price Crisis team have been working on, get in touch with them by emailing pricecrisis at sea.coffee. Check out this episode's show notes to find that email address as well as the links to the video recording of the webinar, downloads of the documents referenced during the session, and the webinar slides. We're going to start with a bit of audio I recorded with Ellie and Kimelina after the webinar. I started by asking Kim to describe the price crisis, its history, and who's affected by it. So, you know, I think if I was going to put it in the most basic terms, when we're talking about the coffee price crisis, we're talking about chronically low prices for coffee, especially coffee traded on the or against the commodity futures market. And um, around a year ago, in August of 2018, that commodity futures price for coffee went below a dollar. And it was the first time in more than a decade that it had been that low. And it was um, just a moment that um, where a lot of people started paying attention to something that had actually been going on for a long time and had been compounded, like those low prices, by the fact that that market price has also been really volatile. So it's especially difficult for producers. I mean, you know, you can argue that it's difficult for anyone in the coffee value chain, but um, especially difficult for producers to be able to predict how much they're going to make for coffee, to be able to cover their costs, to feel secure in investing in their farms. Um, There are all sorts of ways in which it makes the precarious position of being a a smallholder farmer even more precarious and, um, and verging on untenable. It's been a year since August 2018. We're now in August 2019. What's what's happened since then? Oh, I think, you know, it depends on how you look to measure change. I think that a pessimistic way of looking at that would be to look at the futures market for coffee today and see that it's been a year and that price hasn't gone anywhere. Um you know, for most of the the time since it's gone down actually by a few cents and um, a few times it's gone up, but but it hasn't changed much. And um, at the same time, you know, we also see an enormous increase in awareness about this crisis that we've been in for a while, or at least a lot of producers have been in for many years now among buyers, among some consumers, especially due to some recent popular press attention around the coffee price crisis, um, even using language like the coffee price crisis. So, um, you know, I, I think it speaks to the need to look at the long term, even as we use words like crisis, 
because it isn't a, a simple problem that we can solve with a simple solution in a year. Speaking of solutions, in December 2018, the SEA board decides to launch the Price Crisis Response Initiative. Ellie, in basic terms, for someone who's new to this initiative, what is it intended to do and what are the expected outcomes or deliverables? At, at the most basic level, uh, the, price, the SEA Price Crisis Response Initiative, or sometimes we just call it the PCR or the PCR team, we are charged with producing a report. And this report, we have until the end of the year to do so. We're on track. Um, this report would contain a set of recommendations. Um, already, I think we have a sense of what to expect from this report. Um, we're not sure exactly what format it will take. It will probably include a lot of different types of assets, different mappings and, um, and other uh, th items like that. But at the heart of it are the recommendations. Where do we go from here? So I think that what we will produce will be inspiring. Um, I think that we are motivated towards that. We we hope that that our community finds the inspiration in this. Also action oriented. What can we do? What should we do? What will we do? Um, I think clouded or you know couched in that is an assumption that there will be changes. Right? If we're talking about inspiration, action, but I think it's going to be very, they're going to be very difficult. I think it's going to be things that take a long time, a lot of effort, a lot of collaboration, um, and all of the things that go into that. So I think that's what, that's what we are charged with doing, what you can expect. Ultimately, what the purpose of producing a report isn't for the report's sake. It's as a map for embedding this into the ongoing work of the SCA as a driver for the coffee industry, or sometimes we say the coffee sector to be more inclusive of some of the more humanitarian or other organizations that are adjacent to coffee. Um, the, the purpose of the initiative is so that we can fully embed it into our ongoing work. We were talking offline about the conversation, the questions we received from folks who joined us. And I asked you both if there was anything during the presentation that we didn't quite get to. You both mentioned climate change and its compounding effects on the price crisis. Can you tell me a bit about that? What are your concerns related to climate change and its relation to the price crisis? Yeah, I think we both noted it and its, uh, its absence until the very end of the webinar because I think that the price crisis can feel like an incredibly overwhelming topic in and of itself. I mean, you know, I just noted that we haven't seen much change in the past year when it comes to solving the coffee price crisis. But in fact, just the language of calling it the price crisis puts boundaries around it that are economic in nature. So, um, you know, whether it's uh, it's fair or not, oftentimes we will divide up sustainability into these three categories of environmental and social and economic sustainability. And, um, and the price crisis has been looked at as an economic issue. And we've been looking at the, the economic drivers and there are all sorts of really good reasons for doing that. But, you know, we would we would be unwise, let's say, um, not to look at the role that climate change has played in getting us into this situation that we are, you know, um, and also, and, and maybe even more importantly, to think about how climate change is going to 
affect or play a role in any of the solutions or recommendations that we might come up with. Um, because, you know, as I think I said in the webinar, if we arrive at some kind of solution to the economic piece, the current crisis, then climate change and the threats that it poses over the you know near, medium, and long-term horizon are going to you know, make it more and more likely that we'll end up in, in crises of all different sorts. Okay, so let's take a listen to the audio of the webinar. Here's Ellie Hudson and Kim Elena Ionescu speaking to an online audience of close to 300 people about the SEA's Price Crisis Response Initiative. Uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you, Vicente, for hosting. Um, Ellie and I have both been on the background or been the hosts for some price crisis response webinars over the past couple of months. And um, so I very much appreciate the work that you're doing to channel us questions and, and keep our slides moving. Um, so, you know, as, uh, as Vicente said, I'm the Chief Sustainability Officer for the SCA, and I'm part of this price crisis response core group or, or team that's been working on this since we formally launched this initiative in December of 2018. Um, so because we've called this a mid-year update, I'm going to go through um, some of where we are in this initiative, but I want to focus less on the specifics of where we've gathered and exactly who we've talked to and who said what, and more on some of the emerging themes and the conclusions that we are in the process of arriving to through the work that we are doing. So um, as I said, you know, we, we launched this initiative formally in um, December of 2018, uh, largely in response to the movement of the commodity futures market for coffee, which dropped below a dollar um, in August of 2018. So almost exactly a year ago. And um, you know, when we did this, we recognized that we wanted this to be a team that was led by staff, but also included some of our volunteer leadership. So that team is pictured here in its almost entirety. And it includes, you can see, a couple of members of our SCA board of directors. Um, uh, Niels Hack, who represents a parallel or a um, coordinating initiative, um, the Sustainable Coffee Challenge. We've got um, Julie and Ellie and Rick and I from the SCA staff. And then also we have um, a lot of support from Forum for the Future, which is a third party facilitator that we um, contracted early in 2019 to lead us in the convenings that we're doing and in the research and um, to toward the end of the, the year and the conclusion of this uh, first phase of this price crisis response initiative. Um, and so the journey that we are on, you know, we kicked this off and spent the first couple of months identifying this team, um, establishing some goals, what we thought would be within the scope of this initiative in the first year at least, and, um, and the timelines. So uh, how would we make progress? What were we expecting to be able to present to stakeholder groups, including staff and board of directors, but also the membership, the broader community, um, and webinars like this are, are part of that, um, that reporting process. Uh, we've also spent a substantial amount of time since then doing research, which has taken a couple of different forms. One of those forms is you might expect like a desk research. So reading everything that we can get our hands on about um, the root causes for the price crisis that we're in, but also about other times in which we've used this language in coffee, um, experiences from other sectors that might be illustrative or, or educational for informative for us. Um, 
but in addition to uh, to desk research about things that have been tried and uh, and worked or not, um, we've also you know considered that some of the convenings that we've done uh, with different diverse groups of stakeholders are a part of that research also. So one way in which we can learn about especially current realities is by um, gathering groups of people together and uh, and facilitating conversations and um, and asking challenging questions and seeing what kind of ideas people are bringing to this uh, this crisis in this moment. So that's where we are here, having uh, concluded three of these uh, convenings over the past three months in New York, uh, Berlin, and Campinas, Brazil, and um, and we're just sort of transitioning into. Um, having a, a map of the system or of the coffee systems because it's not just one, but that um, will help us to identify what our actions are as an association and as a, um, a specialty coffee more broadly, um, what the leverage points and, and interventions are. And once we've done that, we can go into this implementation phase, which um, is something that I think that, you know, I've, everyone would agree unanimously is going to take a lot more than um, than just a, a year uh, to do but that we know we will have succeeded in terms of uh, the initiative um, and if we embed this in the SCA's work uh, completely so that it is no longer um, an initiative of the SCA but it becomes um, fundamental to who the SCA is and um, and how we how we operate into the future as a as an association. Um, but anyway, all of this talk that I've been doing has been about uh, the price crisis. And um, when we have done this uh, during this research that we've done, one of the questions that came up pretty early was, you know, when did this crisis begin? And did it did it really begin on in August of 2018? Is the uh, commodity futures market price, you know, the arbiter of when of, of crisis. Um, why did we choose that moment to to start calling it a crisis? Why are we calling this initiative the price crisis response? And um, and uh, during that exploration, um, one of the the conversations that arose between me and my colleague Ellie is about um, how we define crisis and how we've done that in coffee in the past, but also how crises are identified and defined more broadly. So I'm going to pass the mic to Ellie to talk uh, a little bit about stages of a crisis. Thanks, Kimelina, and welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us um, and for your interest in this very serious, uh, critical topic for all of us. Um, so what you see here is a sort of graphic representation of stages of a crisis. How do we know when we're in a crisis? How, how is it distinct from um, an, an activity or a problem? Um, crisis is a really strong word and it's something that really stirs a lot of emotion and it's something that implies a large scale. There's a lot of things that we really understand about using the word crisis. So taking a step back and, and ensuring that we um, are using the word correctly, but also that we are doing the actual crisis service by systematically working through it. Um, we use this model and one of the things you can kind of see, there's six stages presented here. It's important to see that this is not presented in a linear format. Logically, we progress through warning, risk assessment, response, management, resolution, and recovery in that order. However, it's possible and really common to be in multiple stages at the same time. Crises don't follow a sort of um, 
a discrete set of activities, often you may be able to start responding while you're still assessing risk. In the case of the price crisis, that's absolutely true of the PCR team and the work that we've been doing. We um, Once we started heeding the warnings, which I'll talk about in a second, we launched into the risk assessment and response stages right away. And there's a few reasons for that, again, that I'll get into. But it's important that although they do progress in a logical order, it's not um, one to the next to the next. It's nonlinear. As far as the warning of, um, of the SCA price crisis with being the first stage, I think it's really important to acknowledge very simply that producers have been saying this for a long time, have been warning the industry about the potential of us getting to where we are. This is captured really well and summarized in other places, other media, including the um, 2019 RICO presentation given by Rick Reinhardt and the earlier webinar um, that where Rick introduced this initiative from February 2019. Um, and so we're not going to get into the details here, but they are available for those that want them. And I think also just generally from the SCA standpoint, it's while the um, producer community was warning us about this, the SEA Sustainability Center absolutely was already responding. And a lot of this work was done by incredibly um, devoted volunteers and the farmer profitability and prosperity working groups in particular of the Sustainability Advisory Council. But naming it a crisis and launching the PCR had had the impact of making it a central priority for the whole organization. And um, you know, we hope to inspire the industry and the whole sector rather than a um, set of priorities for some very capable experts. Big difference. Um, so we uh, recognize that that moment, and certainly some of the other warning signs. Um, the 2013 leaf rust in some regions of coffee production. Um, there's also some of these areas that have not fully covered and certainly the communities that were impacted by leaf rust suffered some uh, economic and social safety net loss and these are some of the things that are really required to insulate against price shocks so we know that that's been a big warning sign i think that it's useful sometimes to step out of coffee for a second and think about a crisis that hopefully most of us um, would share knowledge of and not firsthand experience which is the global financial crisis um, Thinking about the global financial crisis, it's something that we associate with the year 2008, but looking back on it, the warning signs aren't from 2008. Um, often the collapse of Bear Stearns is, is sort of cited as the beginning of the global financial crisis, but the warning signs extend certainly well into the early 2000s and even before with um, interest rates being low and uh, the credit default swaps. Uh, growing in popularity and uh, many credible voices saying this doesn't make any sense and this uh, is going to end up causing a financial crisis and then it certainly did. So I think that the important thing about the warning stage is that recognizing these signs and starting to uh, progress through to the next stages of uh, risk assessment and the responses. Some other um, sort of points that we think about within the warnings are um, the moment uh, in 2018, August, where the commodity futures market or the C fell below the fair trade minimum price, which was $1.40 at the time, or I'm sorry, that was November, 2016, not August of 18. 
Um, many organizations expressed their concerns publicly at that time. So we're talking about November of 2016, August of 2018, um, when the C market fell below a dollar. And that was the first time in more than a decade. That's when we really saw the word crisis start to appear in trade and um, mass media inside and outside of coffee. And then the formation of the uh, CAPCR really started with that moment as well. Um, acknowledging these warnings and uh, certainly those within the SEA community and outside of it and a symbolic end to the warning stage. So that's when we begin in earnest in these next stages. I think that anticipating that many participants of this webinar may be interested in more, um, you know, I don't want you to take my word for it. I'd love for you to hear it directly from producers in particular. We have provided a couple of media, some, the declaration from Nairobi, which was written in March of this year, summarizes a lot of um, what producer organizations said in their own words. And so, Vicente, I don't know if we were able to pull that up for download or if we can um, just address that at the end of the webinar, we can tell people to email us. Uh, the handouts function is not working for some reason, so we will email everybody yeah. who signed up for the for the webinar. Okay, great. So we have a couple of um, pieces, including that Nairobi declaration and a background piece from the ICO that are especially useful. But uh, we're going to talk about this in a little bit. There's actually quite a bit of um, credible information out there, learning and uh, imploring our, us to educate ourselves on that. Um, Moving on then to risk assessment and response. So we said sort of the symbolic end to the warning stage and the initiation of the PCR within, again, this idea of stages of any crisis, not specific to us. We did decide to um, undertake risk assessment and responding at the very beginning concurrently. So we began with the risk assessment. One example is that we started convening stakeholders. And so, so far there have been three in New York, USA, um, Berlin and Campinas, Brazil, Berlin, Germany and Campinas, Brazil. So a couple of samplings of the outputs. And so this is one bulleted list from one of those three convenings that I'm showing to you here. Um, just this idea of how we're really, what we mean when we say risk assessment. So we've got this um, uh, gender non-binary person climbing rocks here and they are really looking at how to get to the top and the best ways to do that. Risk assessment is certainly a part of this. I think this is an illustrative example of how we see it. Um, so really, this is a, an example. From the New York workshop in the, in the US, one of the outputs was really asking these questions about power imbalance and how it impacted the, free the failure of the free market. Looking at the risk and uh, sort of how it impacted us with the lack of external pressure, media or consumer attention on this crisis, although that is changing. Lack of creativity and innovation in this space, um, a, a market model that has been unchanged in um, recent <clears throat> experience and lack of incentives for a new way of doing business. And so this, again, is an example of output of convenings of community members that really started to look and assess these risks, and these were the outputs. I'm going to tease a little bit right now a call to action that will come at the end of this webinar, which is a call to action to a process we call peer review. So this is a sampling of the output of the New York convening, which was the first of the three that have happened. There is one more taking place in Washington, D.C., USA in September. 
we know that not everyone who cares and not everyone who has something to say could be part of these convenings. And we're not, um, we're not gonna just allow that to be the status quo. We want to hear from everyone in our community that has something to say and something to contribute and questions to ask or challenges to raise. So um, we invite you to be part of the peer review process. I'm gonna go over how to do that toward the end of the webinar, but this is a sampling of some of the things that we would send. Um, the full document providing the full context for these bullet points and um, asking you for your feedback on it. What do you think? What are your reactions? Do you challenge some of the assumptions? Do you have some firsthand experience to contribute? Um, so that's a little bit of a side note, but this is just an example, again, of what uh, the PCR has been doing within this risk assessment phase. Um, this is also, uh, I wanna ask Kim Elena a group, or uh, a little bit about how the group arrived at these conclusions um, and whether these conclusions were surprising. So um, we're gonna be looking at root cause analysis and something called a causal loop in the next slide. But before we do that, I just wanna pose that question to you, Kim. So, um, how, you know, how did the group get to these, this list and you know, what was, were we surprised? Yeah, um, you know, like so many of these, um, so many of the conversations that end up probing deeper into problems start with a relatively simple question that addresses something kind of superficial and immediate, like in this case, um, it would have been something like, what is the, uh, the greatest threat um, right now? When you think about the coffee price crisis, you know, what do you think that um, the, the greatest risk is? And from the sum total of the answers that we got to that question about people thinking right now, how am I feeling? You know, what am I thinking? What does my gut tell me? Um, digging deeper into that and asking, well, where does that, why is that uh, a risk? And, and where did that come from? You know, because um, uh, so many times, if we just try to address things on the surface, then um, we might get some sort of catharsis that comes with taking an action or, or sort of solving a problem that's right in front of us. But um, we don't give ourselves any sort of chance of um, solving for the longer term underlying issues or the, or the root causes here. So um, when, we, when we ask a question about risks and someone says that um, you know, producers are unable to cover their costs of production, um, well then well, why is that? You know, why is it that, uh, that producers aren't able to cover costs of production? And if you ask why enough times, then ultimately you end up getting to things like power imbalance and, and free market failure. So um, it's a few steps, but it doesn't take especially long. And it, it seems like with just about every um, action that we want to take or problem that we want to fix, we realize it's a lot deeper than, uh, than that. And we also, you know, we get to seeing the risk not only of, um, of the current situation, but the risk of not taking action, which I think it could be uh, the other side of the coin or a corollary to this slide. And um, that in every conversation also, we get to this point of needing to acknowledge that if we don't take action to address some of the, you know, the power balance, or um, if we don't exercise some creativity and, um, and foster innovation in the space, then we stand to lose a lot, not only as, um, as uh, individuals who are particularly attuned to this, who, who spend a lot of 
time or have spent a, a lot of their career uh, working on this, but also as an entire specialty sector, because we arrive quickly at, um, at the understanding that, you know, where coffee goes in general, specialty goes with it and, and maybe goes even faster. So that um, as we talk about a, a lack of creativity or uh, no new ways of doing business, we realize that, you know, we really have a lot to, uh, to lose. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit later. Thank you. And just recalling the previous slide um, where it said, you know, we are here and it alluded to this idea of a system map. So the two major outputs of response, um, in addition to the early actions that we started to do that we knew we could, um, partnering with humanitarian organizations as one example. Um, the system map and another asset called a landscape assessment are the two major outputs of this response stage that we are working toward. And um, yeah, so we are here. So the map, the system, it, this dotted line could almost go like right through number three, like we're in that stage, but not all the way through it. Um, we have started it. And so again, um, teasing the peer review process and, and inviting everyone to be part of it that's interested. Um, the system map, we have uh, some draft pieces of that really ready to share with our peer reviewers. So draft format, meaning we are awaiting your feedback before it's finalized. And then the landscape assessment, Kim mentioned earlier, uh, the research that has been done, the output of the desk research and um, other formal methods of research is an asset called a landscape assessment. This is going to be presented in draft form to the group that convenes in Washington in mid-September. And then after that, it will be available. So again, the landscape, the draft landscape assessment will be available to peer reviewers and uh, continuing on following that convening. So there are many opportunities to review the work in progress of the uh, price crisis response team. And the system map is um, includes some major outputs from the Campinas Brazil activity where uh, many producers were brought together in uh, facilitated meetings over two days in Brazil and um, actually visited a coffee farm as part of that activity to really start testing these assumptions. And um, if we can advance, I think, two slides and we can take a look at the first causal loop. Great. So this is an example of some of the output from Campinas of these convenings of uh, not just producers, but many, many producers, included many producers. So there were four total causal loops identified and created through the work of these groups. Hi there, it's Vicente again. At this point in the webinar, Ellie shares a slide that shows 10 reasons why money and power are concentrated in certain areas of coffee's value chain. In a graphic intended to show a sort of cyclical interconnectedness among all 10 reasons. One of the loops, for example, shows the text, quote, coffee as a non-native crop is planted by colonizers slash colonial powers, end quote, with an arrow pointing to another line of text that says, quote, economic model based on slavery and low-cost labor, end quote, which points to another line of text that says, quote, low cost of production, end quote, which points to yet another piece of text and the loop continues until it inevitably returns to point at the economic model. It's a complex graphic, so I recommend downloading it following the link in the show notes. So there are four total causal loops. And what this shows is, I think something that any of us that have been paying attention and working in the coffee sector really maybe feel or know inherently, which is that we're in these closed loops that don't allow us to easily make one shift in action ourselves and 
start to cure the coffee price crisis. So this really defines the problem, how did we get here, but very specifically how some actions relate to others. And you can see these are closed loops, all four of them are. This is one of the least complicated or complex, I should say, of the four. But this is just really trying to address why are money and power concentrated in the coffee value chain. So here's the um, distillation of many different works of many different groups that was created to show the root causes. Understanding these root causes, this is the whole point of a risk assessment stage. Um, we have begun to respond as well, but this is what's going to take us into those final three stages of um, starting with the management of the crisis, which is when we really start these organized interventions. Um, I think that the um, it's a good place for us to also address something that um, might be easy to overlook, which is the final risk. Um, what is the risk if we do nothing or the risk of inaction? And this is something that I don't, I don't think anybody's suggesting we do nothing, but it's important for our group to really understand what's at stake in maintaining the status quo. Um, there will be, we, we believe in the recommendations we are beginning to uncover, some uh, very provocative recommendations. So I think it's really important to understand what the stakes are in not doing these um, when it becomes difficult or painful. I'm gonna ask Kim to talk a little bit about this because I think she's been studying this uh, for many years uh, along with uh, leadership volunteers within the Sustainability Center of the SCA. And so Kim, can you tell us a little bit about what we think we know about the risk of inaction? Yeah, um, yeah, thanks for bringing that back. I feel like I, I started to try to launch into this on the last slide, but it's a it's more it's a better illustration here. Um, because you can see when you look at this, you know, the um, the particular causal loop that we're looking at here has a, a one of the same sort of a, like risks that we identified on the last slide about power being concentrated and or power imbalance, I think was the, the wording on the last slide. Um, but Again, it's not just to, to say that this exists, to be able to name it as true, but to, um, to understand, you know, why it is that way. What, um, how do, how does the system or how do systems reinforce that reality? And, um, and only by diagramming it out um, and identifying how these, how different factors work together, some of which might be seemingly unrelated if you didn't drew them a different way or if you discussed them in, in different conversations, um, can you begin to identify the intervention points? You know, where is it that, um, that we, and that could be we as the association proper, or it could be we as specialty coffee, it could be, you know, certain, say, uh, business types or, um, or value chain representatives, people on some people on this call and other other people on this call have opportunities to uh, intervene and change something. And identifying, you know, who is if all of these things say, like, uh, if we and maybe it's a, a stretch to say that we agree that all of these things are, are problems here, all of the sub um, contributing factors to the loop. But if we did, if we did agree on that, that all of these things are um, we desire to change somehow, then it's, uh, it's also identifying, you know, who can do that? Who's in the position to do that? Um, who are we missing currently in order to be able to, um, to address those? And so uh, that's one of the ways in which I see, you know, the, um, the risk of an action 
is that this loop just um, continues and it gets uh, sort of tighter and tighter and it's more and more efficient in uh, delivering what it is that it's it's designed to deliver. So if um, if we agree that money and power are concentrated and that we have a system that's done that, then if we let things lie, it will just um, continue to do that better and better for the for the foreseeable future. Um, so uh, if you know we um, if companies are are say homogenous homogenous companies are making homogenous decisions, then what is going to what is going to change that? And um, one of the conclusions from the workshop that we did in Berlin was um, that you know the SCA has a, a responsibility and an opportunity to speak to this and that one in particular about um, about the decisions that companies make. Um, given our representation and given the platform that we have. Um, but, you know, how, what is the risk of, of doing so? What sort of challenges are we posing to um, business as usual? But then also, what is the risk of, of inaction? What do we stand to lose? And um, when we talk about homogeneity in terms of the market, but also in terms of, of coffee production, then, um, you know, the more homogenous coffee is, uh, the less room there is for specialty, which is, completely predicated on having something to differentiate it from the surrounding homogenousness. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty serious when, you know, I can't help but feel that um, the seriousness and the gravity of, of the situation that we're in really uh, in looking at the risk of inaction. Um, well, I have you, Kim. I think that there's it's important for us to really understand this in the landscape of sustainability efforts um, writ large, past, present, and future, and um, you know, sort of how we, as the SEA and the larger coffee sector, how do we plug into the sustainability landscape and the humanitarian landscape, especially? Yeah, one of the. Um you know, one of the conclusions from the New York workshop that we did was um, as we were looking for short-term actions, you know, knowing that we need to address, uh, as I've already said, I'm sure probably multiple times by now, um, this, uh, this large-scale crisis on a short and long-term horizon. Um, I think that, you know, sometimes as we try to uh, avoid thinking superficially, uh, we can also miss opportunities and needs that are maybe immediate and don't necessarily address these, you know, these sort of causal loops or underlying causes, but are needs nonetheless. And um, a call for uh, for partnership or for outreach to humanitarian aid organizations, especially thinking about the, um, you know, what uh, what in sort of uh, coffee food security parlance we might call the thin months. Um, in the region of Central America, um, those being more or less now, um, that we may, even as we're trying to think long-term about you know, structural inequality, uh, there may be more and more coffee growers who are facing choices about um, whether or not they'll be able to buy food, um, whether they should migrate. And this has been reflected actually very recently in popular press articles about um, the connection between migration from Central America to the United States and um, and low coffee prices and uh, and all sorts of, of different um, entities now, including the public sector, like the United States government, um, see this as a, an area where there is some immediate need 
And so um, having a, a coffee and a, a specialty um, presence in those conversations and trying to, um, to bring different actors together is the way in which we can both think you know, long-term about the future that we want, this sort of system that we want to create, and also how to, uh, to make sure that we're not um, ignoring the immediate and very real um, issues that members of our community are, are facing on a, a day, daily basis. Um, and those partnerships are, uh, are not new to coffee. I mean, many coffee companies will have long-term relationships with many development organizations. Um, some of those have been, uh, have been really successful and celebrated. Um, but one thing that struck me when I uh, went back and reread a, uh, a publication that we were part of in 2016, a coffee sustainability catalog that we um, contributed to along with a, a few other um, platforms and collaborative organizations was that uh, the priorities for development organizations and coffee companies when it comes to investing in sustainability um, tend to be pretty different and uh, that many of the NGOs will address first some sort of um, component of the social fabric in a, a coffee producing community. Um, coffee producers themselves or the community around them and um, that when industry invests it's more likely to be in some kind of farming practice. Technical assistance is uh, where the lion's share of, um, of industry investment in sustainability has gone over the past and this was from 2016 so you know that's the caveat that it's possible that it's changed but I don't um, you know I, I don't expect that that's the case and a lot of that technical assistance has come in the form of productivity improvements and um, on an individual level or a community level that can be really fundamental to um, being a, a market you know actor or having um, having enough coffee to even you know potentially you have the possibility of covering your your operating costs as a, a small business but it can also you know when we step back we can see in aggregate that we're in a, a situation now where we have a, a global oversupply of coffee or where demand is not meeting the supply that we have and so in that sense you know when we think about causes then it's hard not to at least wonder not on an individual farm level but again in aggregate what has our drive for productivity improvement as a pathway out of um you know uh, unprofitability what has that led to what have been the unintended consequences of of that so um as we you know i think as we partner and as we are facing this current crisis then this is one of those opportunities to look at the choices that we've made in the past and how they have succeeded why we made them but then also what kind of decisions we would make differently now with the benefit of, of hindsight so maybe that's a, a good mm -hmm. segue into talking about you know like more of those those sorts of actions besides humanitarian aid that we've identified um, so another one 
another theme that's emerged really strongly and that um, I'm excited about, and I think a lot of people are, is um, the concept of living wage and living income in, uh, in coffee or for coffee growers. Um, and it's interesting because it's emerging not just in coffee, but in all sorts of agricultural sectors. We've had um, a couple of really compelling examples come to us from uh, from cocoa, from bananas, um, from the Global Living Wage Coalition, which is active right now and, uh, and convening also around this topic in particular. There's a lot of expertise there, um, but not much of it has come from coffee to date. So um, that to me speaks to the opportunity that we have uh, with the, in many cases, that you know, um, close relationships that uh, that coffee companies may have with uh, throughout their supply chains. You know that producers may have more access to buyers um, in coffee supply chains than in banana or in um, in cocoa supply chains. I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of interest there. There's a lot to um, to learn, and I'm uh, I'm excited to bring more information about that to the SEA audience and the specialty community in the um, in the months to come. Building on that, there's several themes that we've started to see emerge that we expect will be the framework for stage four management. I think that the moving into this stage of management is um, it feels a little bit like the promised land as many of us and, and we have fielded a lot of questions about action and how do I get involved. I think this is where we really are able to start, start um, working on organized interventions. And that is really exciting. You mentioned the living income movement. Um, some of the other things that are particularly exciting, we've seen uh, the need for us to engage legal experts on um, the antitrust landscape and making sure that we stay on the safe side of antitrust laws and ethical practices as well. Um, certainly emphasizing that partnering with experts on that to lead us. And um, I think that really learning about how many sustainability efforts in other industries, pineapples is one that we study a little more closely, have run into that. I think being able to learn from that and, and anticipate that, but also engage those experts, which we've begun to do. Um, don't forget about consumers. This is another one. I think that there's uh, a, definitely a role and the call to action of delivering full tri price transparency across the supply chain uh, technology-driven traceability. We hear a lot about blockchain as one example. Um, but the thing I'm most excited about is the um, uh, huge call to action that we've alluded to and mentioned a couple times, which is this peer review process that we are asking our community to be part of. So um, if any of this sounds interesting, um, I, I promise you it is a very small sampling of the work done to date. And we, we really do hope that many people can be involved in reviewing it, providing anything from a reaction. It can be, I like it, I don't like it. That's useful. Or um, really articulate feedback, systematic feedback, any of the documents. We have the outputs from three convenings. We have the causal loops and a couple, and uh, the overall framework, which we call our terms of reference. These are five documents that are available for peer review now. If you want to be a peer reviewer, all you have to do is email us pricecrisis at sca.coffee and you will get those materials. We're asking for feedback on these by the end of August. Um, feedback is always welcome, but in order for us to continue to incorporate it on the work in progress, obviously there has to be a deadline. 
then there will probably be a couple more that we're looking at sending out this week. And you know, if there's one in particular, if you just want to see the causal loops, go ahead and mention that, and we'll make sure that's what you get to see. Um, and then certainly the additional resources available at sca.coffee/pricecrisis. So this is the thing. This peer review process is something I'm most excited about. I think it's a really progressive and open way of working that we're seeing in lots of organizations, showing work in progress. So it's not finished, but I think acknowledging that it, while it may still, the rough edges are visible, the thing that's missing is your voice, and it's important. Yeah, one of the most um, moving moments of RICO for me uh, back in April, and this was an event that was pretty much solely dedicated to the price crisis as a, um, as a concept and, uh, and approaches and causes and actions, was um, during a discussion session when uh, a tenured SCA staffer um, explained that within this initiative, we would be talking to everyone we knew about this and, um, and you know, reaching out all over the place and, and gathering people together. And the person who'd asked the question challenged back, but here, you don't know me, you know, so you're not going to call me. I'm not going to be included in this. And I think I have something to contribute. So um, for anyone who's on this call that, uh, that hasn't been called yet, then uh, we really do look for and value your, um, your feedback here. We promised an answer to the question, so what can I do? Certainly, this is a huge ask. I hope that this um, is something that many of you do participate in, in the peer review process. There's a couple other suggestions that we have um, as far as coffee professionals, engaged coffee professionals or coffee adjacent that want to contribute. Um, one thing I think just, it seems simple, but is worth noting is, is to support the work of the PCR as we move through these stages, um, really looking towards this resolution and recovery. One of the things that's worth noting is that the resolution and recovery activities tend to take the most time of, of crises. Um, entering a crisis can sometimes feel like a flashpoint. Certainly a natural disaster is an example of that. And the resolution following a responsible risk assessment is um, you know, something that takes some time as well as the overall recovery. It doesn't happen overnight. And we ask you to really reflect on that and fully commit to it. Um, another thing that is something we really encourage anyone or everyone to do is to raise awareness, but also to educate yourself. Um, I had a, I, my family was invited to a, a birthday dinner for a friend last night and we had uh, of course the you know sometimes it comes up as you know people think that the work we do in coffee is interesting so my friend's parents had asked okay so what is this what is the coffee price crisis what do you what do you mean by that and um, I felt really confident talking to people who um, really are coffee consumers they're very interested in it but I got that way not from the work in the PCR, but through really educating myself, reading a lot of the mass media articles that are available, and certainly the coffee trade. Um, Daily Coffee News, those of you that follow the um, online arm of Roast Magazine, Daily Coffee News said it was the most uh, mentioned term for them of 2018. They have a great resource that really aggregates all the times the price crisis was mentioned. And, um, sca.coffee slash price crisis is another one that has really gathered a lot of these um, articles together from the mass media as well as coffee media. This is a really good way. Some of SCA's own produced content, particularly the podcasts and YouTube videos from RICO 2019 are extremely helpful in understanding not just how we got here, but what have other industries faced? What are the experts saying? 
um, and really taking the time to listen to that and reflect on it in your own uh, activity. Um, one thing that anyone can do now is this call to know your supply chain. So what does that mean? Um, how, whatever position you occupy, roaster, greenie, producer, barista, um, all the other actors within that we know take to bring that specialty coffee um, to rea into reality. Really, I, I encourage and implore everyone to get a sense of your own supply chain and start having these conversations about changes to the model. This was the number one output of Berlin. Those of you that have signed up to be peer reviewers will see this, was this need to really address how can we change the business model of specialty coffee. Um, and so the, the early, you know, we don't have an answer to that, but it certainly um, is something that wouldn't happen without having those relationships or at least absent a relationship, knowing who, who we are in these, in these supply chains and being able to have the conversations. Um, I heard an interview with the current chief marketing officer of Dr. Bronner's soap. So that's the, the soap that has like all the words on it and they're sort of known for their political views. And her name's Lisa Bronner. She's the granddaughter of the founder. And the question they asked her about like, how does this political landscape enter into the current business model for Dr. Bronner's soap? And what she said was, well, it, the company started as a way for my grandfather to get his political beliefs out there. He didn't really care about soap, but he wanted to make a responsible product, printed his political beliefs on it and sold the soap. Now the company's really evolved and they are a well-known uh, organization that's very committed to sustainability and, and so several, several sustainability causes. But she said their position is all about raising awareness. She said, we're not actually trying to get people to change. When I heard that, I found that very surprising. How could you not want to implore change? Isn't that the point? What she was trying to say and what she said was, maybe people will change, maybe actions will change, maybe people will get inspired we're leaving that up to the person. We respect people's individual choices and we're not trying to change anyone. But I guarantee no one will change if we don't take that first step of raising awareness. I thought that was really inspiring. I think it is important. And even if it means a conversation at your friend's birthday party who doesn't work in coffee with their parents who definitely don't work in coffee, but being able to articulate and have a sense of, of um, you know, just what's happening. That is so impactful. Sometimes we think it's not, it really is. Um, and then finally, you know, no surprise, what can you do? Become a peer reviewer. So those are the sort of four suggestions we have for you today with many, many more to come in the coming months. All right, and I think that, um, you know, as usual, we have uh, uh, less time for questions than um, would be ideal, but we're going to, um, I'll blow through the this timeline here and say that um, coming up, We'll be publishing these approaches and interventions um, mid-September, probably realistically late September. But uh, having this uh, this information publicly available and uh, and more plenty more discussions to come. All right, thank you so much, Ellie and Kimelena. Um, as you said, uh, Kimelena, we have just a few more minutes. But Ellie and Kimelena, can you stick around for another 10-15 minutes so we can take some questions? We've got plenty sure. of questions here. Uh, I've been reading your questions, everyone. I see a few folks have their hands up uh, who want to speak. I want to start with, um, uh, I'm going to merge a couple of questions that we received that are sort of similar. Um, and uh, this one's for Kim Elena, but I'll start by reading a couple of the questions here or some of the comments too. So Mark says, um, our house is burning down. Uh, the webinar so far illustrates the passivity in general. Uh, it's a discussion about, the, about whether we should call it a fire 
and B, call the fire department, uh, sorry, uh, whether we should call it a fire and call the fire department and C, get out of the house. We, get a, we better get moving. Um, another sort of similar um, sort of related question is part of the objective to, of the PCR to increase the price, coffee, uh, the price that coffee farmers get. When do you anticipate results? And so that was, you know, it made me think a little bit about, uh, I want to I talk a little bit about the objectives of the, of, of the SCA's initiative related to the price crisis, right? Um, some might feel, you know, like Mark might feel like this feels a lot like an academic exercise, right? So I'd love to hear from you, Kim Elena, like what, um, maybe, maybe talk a little bit about that. What is it? What is it not? Right. What are some of the things that, you know, um, what would you say to somebody who, who says like, well, this feels like a lot of talk, a lot of, uh, of great and academic exercise, but what comes after this? Right. Um, and, and, and to talk a little bit, a little bit about that, please. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear that. And we've used a, um, you know, sort of a health metaphor before about this being a, both a chronic condition and also like a, a immediate, you know, the heart attack is the metaphor that, uh, that we've thrown around. But um, and I know that there's a lot of pent up frustration uh, and that is on the part of um, anyone in the supply chain. I mean, certainly producers, but um, there is an academic component to this exercise in as much as um, in order for us not to just uh, sort of act on who the act as individuals, you know, um, individuals within the association as staff people act as individual companies, um, then some kind of process has to be gone through to identify what is the what do we have in common or what's the sort of bigger opportunity and that is not to say that anyone should not take opportunities again in their own supply chains you know for uh, coffee value chain actors I think from the SCA we've certainly taken opportunities that we have like at our events because we do a lot of events we um, we do education and we launched a sustainability course so these are um, our activities that the SCA does um, that we are actively looking at and, and changing because we see that this um, this situation is uh, is immediate and it's urgent, um, and so you know as an association, what can we do? Well, we don't trade coffee. You know, we don't uh, we don't buy anything um, off of the commodities market or not. So um, that is not an action that we can take, but that's certainly an action that people within our community can take and should be taking. So there is, you know, in no way am I saying, wait, everyone, don't act now. Wait until the SCA comes out with some recommendations in September or later in order to um, to change your uh, your practices, like the complete opposite. Um, it's just, I think, a, a matter of recognizing the diversity of stakeholders in our community also, that we have, what, 11 thousand members and that's just members that doesn't even count people who attend our events who aren't members or who take our educational classes the the recommendations for each of them are going to be different you know it's not one single solution it is a suite of many different uh, many different solutions on many different timescales does that answer the question I mean I feel like I, I spoke to the um, immediacy part of it versus long term but um, but I feel like the sense of your question might have been more nuanced. So if I missed something, just let me know. No, I think I think that answers it. I, uh, maybe um, I, you know, not to put you on the spot here, but what is it not? You know, if um, right, we all feel a sort of sense of urgency uh, because of the most recent dip in the market, or one of the most recent recent dips in the market. 
what is the what is the initiative not going to do? If if maybe that's a difficult question to answer. You know that you think people are looking for maybe in in in, in the industry. Um. Well, I mean, I think my my immediate response to that is that the initiative isn't going to offer us a single solution. You know, it isn't to kind of create. Um, there have been all sorts of different uh, calls on the SCA um, to, you know, uh, establish an alternative market to the C market, and that I mean. I, a part of me wants to say that nothing's outside the realm of possibility, but that's also that's not something that the price crisis response initiative is going to do. You know, um, when we talk about this initiative versus talking about the future of the Specialty Coffee Association, I mean, you know, one of my um, one of my collaborators in this PCR initiative is uh, is famous for saying, you know, we are the SCA, talking about not just staff, but um, volunteers and members and you know community stakeholders so you know how this um, how this initiative informs our future I think that anything really is possible but a one-year initiative is not going to uh, be able to accomplish something like that so I think in that sense it's important also to separate what we can do in a year from what we could potentially do to create a system that we think is is just and and distributes value equitably um, we have a question here from uh, Piet van Asten. Um, the question is, is the price crisis of coffee structurally different from several other agricultural commodity price crises in countries slash crops that don't have any colonial history? Well, I can say that I'm not an expert in any other crop. So um, if there's one in particular that uh, that this person is um, is thinking of or has some, some expertise in, then um, you know, I think being a, a citizen of the United States that we can talk about uh, or I can speak with like a very basic operational knowledge of some of the price volatility or fluctuations or uh, drops in markets for products that we grow a lot of here um, and talk about how those are structurally different. But I'm not but I'd love to know if there's like an example that someone would say, how is this different or similar to soybeans in China or um, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I think it's also worth, yeah, worth mentioning that the we looked for um, many of these types of initiatives um, with uh, outside of coffee with it, the first round of research toward the producing the landscape assessment. And so I think that asset, which is the early draft of it is expected um, around late September, uh, maybe earlier than that, that will speak to some of these other initiatives that we've studied. And like Kim said, if there's one in particular that someone has to suggest, please do. We did look at tea, um, bananas, cocoa, um, a couple different initiatives within those industries. The one I looked at most closely was the Cocoa BOD in Ghana, which was a government and private industry collaboration, mostly a government initiative in one country that has been um, really manifesting for close to 70 years. So there's, we've tried to learn a little bit about what other initiatives and interventions have taken place in commodities writ large, learning lessons learned and, and what could be relevant for coffee going forward. 
so I think that there's um, it's a little bit more complex to answer on a soundbite here, but I think that the landscape assessment is really well positioned to do that. So when the draft of that's available, I would say look for that. And one more thing, I know we probably have a lot of questions, but um, it occurred to me as you were talking and giving those examples that those are all the person had asked about the kind of juxtaposition of colonial coffee with not colonial something else, and that um, you know one uh, one aspect that probably is that unites um, all of those you know colonial commodities is um, the sort of value crisis piece. So uh, there's an aspect of this that's about the actual price, like uh, you know what is the um, what is that price on that commodity futures trading market? But then there's a part of it that's about how this product is valued um, by buyers toward producers, you know, how, uh, how labor is valued, how consumers value coffee and have been taught to value coffee. And, um, and that there are, there are definitely, um, you know, domestic markets, say, if a, a crop is produced and consumed um, closer to its point of origin, that the, uh, there isn't quite the, the same sort of crisis of value that goes along with uh, many of these longer supply chains um, and colonial legacies. Thank you. We have we have here a question from um, from Daniel. Uh, Daniel says, although it seems early in the research, is there any consideration to separate specialty from the C market, since both commercial and specialty are intertwined in the futures market? How viable is this? Who wants to yeah, take this is. Um, I mean, the questions about uh, what is specialty coffee that have arisen from this uh, the exploration to date have been some of my my favorites. Um, so uh, I think. Again, just like we got to this question about, well, how do we define a crisis pretty uh, pretty soon in this, was the question of, you know, what specialty's role in um, in creating this, you know, the circumstances that we, we see now, and how um, how does specialty's role need to be different um, in, in the future? Um, understanding that, again, as an association, we have more leverage in some areas than in others, with some stakeholders than in others, um, and that we are all ultimately interconnected, you know, and I think that's especially true uh, looking from production forward, say, if you like think about the supply chain as a linear thing, but uh, versus the uh, buyer backward, because producers can't choose to produce only specialty coffee. Um, I know plenty of people would love to say, yes, I'm going to produce 80 plus coffees exclusively. Um, in fact, can we cut it off at 85 plus? But that's not a that's not a reality. That's not a choice that a, a producer can make um, under normal circumstances to say annually, yes, I, I'm going to you know to do that. So um, I think that to me that suggests that we need to think about the whole picture, but also again recognize that um, that we have as an association the most influence in sort of certain roles in that supply chain you know value stream um, and exercise our leverage there um, and uh, that how we define or don't define specialty coffee and who does the defining you know who determines when a coffee is specialty or not or how that um, the you know the assessment that determines its worth or that uh, that determines its, its value is um, is given. Those are questions that uh, that I think um, potentially are, are very rich ones because they they open the door to a lot of of change in the future. But I uh, I think that it would be you know short sighted to say we just need to separate specialties somehow from commodity uh, coffee without looking at the ways that they're 
they're intertwined and, and who does the separating. And this was alluded to in the causal loop that was presented a couple slides ago, where it said um, breaking, you know, the idea of the forcing producers into this price taker role. And for those not familiar with that term, what that really means is that the production of quality versus um, a uh, lack of relevance to quality um, doesn't change what the what the market trades at. And so I think that puts the I think it speaks to the role of specialty in a sense that we we do have a hunch that specialty coffee could be um, an exception to that if we are able to really look at that the changing of the of the model overall. But I think you know it's we're stuck currently. We see ourselves sort of stuck in this loop that um, a, 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 attempting to change that has had the effect of continuing on in the same closed loop so far. Mm -hmm. I, I want to open it up to folks who have raised their hand to speak, but um, I see quite a quite a few questions around the um, the topic of oversupply in the market. Uh, which uh, you, you discussed earlier in the presentation, in the webinar. And I'm going to try to sort of merge some of these questions. And essentially, the, 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 the question that people are asking is, um, on, on one hand, you say that oversupply has been identified as a, as a potential problem in, in, uh, or, or catalyst or, or part of this crisis. Uh, on the other hand, we hear, hey, there's, there's, there's a problem uh, we're going to need more supply. We're going to be to be able. We're going to need to be able to produce more. And so the question is, how do we balance these two? You know, on the one hand, the need, and on the other, the problem of oversupply. So yeah, this is a this is one of those cases of holding two different realities in your brain at the same time that kind of contradict each other. That we uh, once have a global oversupply when it comes to the um, the quant of coffee available today and the demand for that coffee in just pure volume terms. But uh, even if we look at just today, um, I think it's, it's also true that we have less supply of the coffee that um, maybe we, thinking about specialty or at least how specialty has historically been characterized or how we thought of ourselves in the supply of coffee that we um, have counted on and often we use washed Arabica as a proxy for that, uh, that number. Um, for the past couple of decades, uh, there's a, you know, a, that number is shrinking. Um, so we potentially have less coffee available now of the sort of the sort of style and quality level that we want to buy even now. And as we project into the future, that's where we really see those, um, you know, those proportions being posing a real risk for, again, for specialty coffee as, uh, as we have, um, Kind of built the the industry and the the flavor profiles um, because we see that washed arabica percentage continuing to shrink and um, ever more concentration of production in a few countries where it's you know not for every producer but more likely to be profitable to continue to produce coffee and to make further investments in um, in productivity and in technology and uh, and increasing competitiveness. So I think that there is a an aspect of this that relates to a tension that we feel now. But um, but when we're talking about not having enough coffee, um, I think you know without speaking for all of the different articles that uh, that forecast a um, a 
you know, dim future for coffee. There's a, a specialty aspect of that, that it's going to be harder to get the kind of coffee that we value the most highly um, and celebrate within with our businesses. Um, but then also, as supply concentrates, we can't, you know, we can't talk about that uh, only economically. We also have to talk about the climate risk that is posed by having a concentration of production in a couple of places and the increasing likelihood of some kind of climatic event uh, affecting coffee and putting an, you know, a greater share of our supply of whatever the quality level is at, uh, at risk. And then, you know, that has economic implications too. Um, you know, we focused on the sort of economic picture because that's the crisis in the short term, but it is um, absolutely, you know, the, the environmental side and the climate has uh, has been a, a major contributor to getting us to the, the situation that we're in. Ellie mentioned leaf rust and it will be, um, you know, if we can solve for the crisis economically, then uh, we better be stay in crisis response mode for the um, for the environmental piece. Um, so let me open it up to folks who have raised their hands to speak. Let's give let's give Dean a try. Hi, Dean, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. We yes. Can. Yes. Hooray. Um, so uh, please let me know if this is a rabbit hole and um, don't feel free not to answer it. But uh, I once read that uh, sustainability uh, should be pre-competitive. Um, and I was curious what that could look like in practice. Oof. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Can it, does it have, no, no, no. Does it have to be only pre-competitive? Um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Great. So as someone who's worked in, uh, with a sustainability title for longer than many, it's got like 12 years now. Um, I have been part of, uh, of collaborative sustainability initiatives. And um, and they are some of the most rewarding, uh, some of the most rewarding work that I've been a part of, but also some of the most challenging um, to reconcile all of these competitive um, entities. Uh, in my case, it's been mostly working with coffee businesses um, around something that is uh, is shared and in some way sort of protected from the um, the competitive interests of the the businesses. And I think that I. You know, I don't believe that we can, like, we can leave it to competition at all. Um, I think that the the sort of pre-competitive space is where we can achieve like real economies of scale and um, and be able to think longer term. Um, but I also think that if we try to protect sustainability and say it's only you know pre-competitive, then we are. Um, we are keeping ourselves from using some of the you know, most robust tools that we have as a, an association that represents more businesses wherever they are in the value stream than anything else. So, um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to say like a, a sort of both and situation where I both you know know that we need to see much more investment in the, the pre-competitive space, but also to make sure that uh, sustainability is dynamic and um, and uh, a source of, you know, uh, like consumer engagement, value creation, all, all of the things that our businesses are designed to do uh, in order for it to to really become embedded. Um, we've got... Can another... I just add one thing yes, before please. we move on, which is just like... Um... It's, it might be kind of counterintuitive to, to the question, but I, th this is also at the heart of why um, engaging experts to help us with staying on the safe side of antitrust law and also maybe potentially reimagining that. That's the heart of why that's important. Um, I know law is probably not the passion of, of a lot of people in coffee, 
but it's an important component of, of this activity. We know that already. And um, taking some lessons learned, sustainability, pre-competitive collaboration has sometimes, like I mentioned pineapples earlier, has sometimes treaded in that direction. Or in some cases, there have been initiatives that have taken a large, um, taken an effort to get ahead of it and start asking the questions and engaging experts. And that's really where we want to be too. And so I think that's, you know, it just I just wanted to make that connection. Thank you, Ellie. Um, we've got a couple of uh, a comment and a question here from from Kyle. Um, well, and, and they're sort of uh, they're a little bit related, but I'll read the comment first. Important to note that the uh, thin months isn't just when uh, prices are below a dollar forty. It's a consistent fact. Coffee is not enough for families. Um, or uh, and then uh, we've got another one here also from Kyle. I hear a lot about antitrust issues on the market side but the entire futures market seems to be a massive coordinated approach to push risk down the supply chain. Why aren't we looking more strenuously at how we break coffee out of the, out of the commodity market? Um, first, thank you for that. I, probably a reminder to me to clarify any jargon and thin months is maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit jargony in that um, it assumes sort of a, a viewer's knowledge of um, food security and how harvest cycles work in payment and that, um, know to simplify it it, uh, it acknowledges that for many coffee producers and their families there's a, a gap between um you know when they the money runs out from the pre pre previous harvest and the um the money starts coming in from the next one and that we refer to those as the, the thin months when people tend to um, compensate for the lack of income by eating less um so thanks for that, Kyle. Uh, the second point about um, about the coordinated effort and, and pushing risk downstream. Yeah, um, I think there's a, a that's a, certainly borne out by a lot of the work that we have been doing and a lot of the different perspectives that we have gained over the course of this past six months or so. Um, you know, on the other hand, without uh, from from all of the experts, you know, or all of the experts we've heard from. Um, have given us uh, some valuable perspective. And, and I would be remiss if I tried to position myself as an expert in any of the, the these things that, um, you know, whether it's antitrust law or, um, or how futures markets work. But, um, you know, another recurring theme from these discussions is that there are ways in which this market does work. There are people for whom it works. It's not, um, but it doesn't work for, the people who have been part of, you know, specialty coffee's uh, growth, and who are in its, uh, who are currently stakeholders and want to be future stakeholders, so that, um, you know, we cannot rely upon this tool to the degree that we have to date. It cannot be our only tool. Um, but the uh, the abolition of the the tool also, it would be, you know. I, I don't feel like I'm at a, a point yet where I could say, yeah, let's, you know, let's take it down without feeling like um, there would be a lot of unintended consequences uh, to that too. And, and again, um, some of the, you know, some of the advocates for uh, building an alternative market or building um, you know, differentiated alternative mechanisms um, for price discovery would also say, but you know, this one has its, I understand why this the mechanism that we have has its advantages. Why, when it was constructed, it was to stabilize markets. Um, so anyway, if anyone wants to like hear from those 
with themselves, I'd be happy to direct them to some recorded talks. I also think, um, you know, we, we should take the opportunity to plug some of the next webinar sessions that we have anticipated for this the next couple of months, including um, some uh, some emphasis on different price related interventions, and I just use that in a very broad term. Um, one example that many of us in coffee are familiar with is fair trade. Um, they're a member of the SCA and a longtime participant, and so we're going to talk a little bit about in depth about the fair trade standard and how that was established and there will be a chance for participants to kind of ask and engage with experts on that. Um, we also anticipate something around living income and that living income movement and a chance for our community to engage with experts on that. I think that these are some examples that will be really illustrative in terms of um, not you know, just examples of things that have been attempted and things that are working and sort of some of the things that coffee companies can take their own initiative and kind of make their own decisions about to what degree they may want to get involved with either of these just two of many many examples that was kim elena yanescu and ellie hudson presenting an update on the work of the sea's price crisis team who are currently working on a report with recommendations for the coffee industry to learn more about their work visit sca.coffee slash price crisis and get involved in the report's peer review process by emailing the team at pricecrisis at sca.coffee. Find that email address and all of the links in the show notes. This has been a special episode of the SCA podcast brought to you by the members of the Specialty Coffee Association. My name is Vicente Partida. Thank you very much for listening.